My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. contributing to the deaths in Yemen and this ongoing war. What's unique about People for Peace is that we're not just asking for the end of this contract, but we're also asking for a conversion of the plant and to stop producing these war machines for the war industry and convert and transition to peaceful production. That's the voice of Anna Badillo. She and David Heap are today's guests on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Anna Badillo did a degree in peace studies and currently works in academic contexts. She's involved in various nonprofit and advocacy groups, and she's been active around prisoner justice, Palestine solidarity, and lots of other issues. David Heap teaches linguistics and French at the University of Western Ontario, and has been active in a range of social movements since his youth. They speak today about their involvement in People for Peace, a grassroots peace group in London, Ontario. The group initially came together in the lead-up to the U.S.-led invasion and recolonization of Iraq in 2003. It was an era of mass anti-war politics. The movement in Canada managed to keep this country out of direct military participation, though of course the Canadian state still acted in support of the invasion in many other ways. But globally, movements were unable to prevent the invasion of Iraq or the broader imperial violence of the West's so-called War on Terror, and much of the movement's momentum dissipated within a few years. But People for Peace stuck around, and they've been involved in a lot of different struggles in the years since. A major focus of involvement in the earlier years was supporting U.S. war resistors, that is, U.S. soldiers who came to Canada to avoid serving in the occupation forces in Iraq. The group, of course, acted where they could in opposing the ongoing wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. As well, over those years, there were periodic assaults by the Israeli state against Palestinian people in Gaza, and People for Peace was quite involved in organizing demonstrations in those moments, in opposing the Israeli siege of Gaza, and in supporting the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, or BDS, movement in support of the Palestinian people. They contribute locally to efforts to get Canada out of NATO, to stop the federal government from spending untold billions on new fighter jets, and many other initiatives from the broader peace movement. As well, they have regularly acted in support of prisoner justice struggles, numerous indigenous struggles, the movement for black lives, and lots more. Perhaps the national and international issue in which London has been most central in recent years has been the growing opposition to Canada's arms sales to Saudi Arabia. A former locomotive plant in the city was retooled around 40 years ago to produce light armored vehicles, also called LAVs or LAVs, a category of tank-like military vehicles. From the beginning, Saudi Arabia was one of its customers. But in 2014, the Harper Conservative government signed a deal that was subsequently approved by the Trudeau Liberals for the largest arms sale in Canadian history. The Saudis would pay approximately $15 billion for LAVs from General Dynamics Land Systems to be manufactured at their London plant. There's growing evidence that these vehicles have been used by the Saudis in repressive ways, including in the Saudi-led war on Yemen. 
For several years now, the United Nations has named Yemen as the world's worst humanitarian crisis, and in the last two years it has named Canada as part of the problem for its role in arming the Saudis. There is a broad coalition in Canada against the sale of arms to Saudi Arabia, and People for Peace is a member. Locally, they've done extensive public education on this issue, and they have lobbied local politicians, picketed the plant, and briefly blocked the rails by which finished LAVs were about to be transported. But they also take a much stronger position than the coalition. They're against selling arms to anyone, even our own government or the US. And they're demanding that the federal government support the reconversion of the plant back to producing trains and other sustainable transportation infrastructure. After all, in an era of climate crisis, such products are, will be, should be, desperately needed. Some peace groups have a narrow vision that defines peace as simply the absence of war. But People for Peace has always sought not just to oppose the direct violence of warfare, but to recognize that true peace requires transforming cultures and systems of militarism, empire, and injustice. I speak with Badillo and Heap about the work of People for Peace. My name's Anna Badillo. I received my master's at Trinity College in Dublin in International Peace Studies. I continue to work in academia and have organized with various different non-for-profits and advocacy groups within Canada. I started getting involved in activism during my undergrad at King's University College at Western University. I met David actually through the Prisoner's Justice Film Festival. I attended an organization meeting and that kind of started my path in various activist movements. I was doing prisoners' rights work, and then that kind of led me into Palestinian solidarity and activism work. And then I just never really looked back from that work. I went to Ireland to pursue my master's, and the reason why I chose Ireland because of the British occupation in Ireland and the similarities to Palestine as well. During my time there, I had an opportunity to pursue an internship in human rights work in the old city of Jerusalem, and then I decided to come back to Canada. I've always envisioned doing international work, and while I was over there in the Middle East, I came to realize that a lot of it is fluff, and I found that maybe I could pursue more tangible and meaningful work with the local community, but connecting global and local issues. So that's why I came back to Canada and continued to do more grassroots work on the ground here. I did an internship in Montreal with Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East to continue that human rights work. And then I ended up back in London with People for Peace. I'm David Heap, a teacher researcher at University of Western Ontario in linguistics and French. And for many years, an activist in the community and beyond for peace and human rights causes. I've been involved in peace and human rights causes since before I can remember. So let's say something over 50 years. I was lucky to grow up in a milieu in Toronto where there were U.S. war resistors from, at that time, the Vietnam War, and also people staying with us from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the States when they came to Toronto to help build campaigns against segregation in the U.S. Some of my early memories are leafleting for the Great Boycott with United Farm Workers representatives in Toronto. And then through the 80s, I was involved in the peace movement, the movement against the cruise missile testing in Canada, for example, and against the development of cruise missile technology and the production just outside Toronto. The importance there really struck home to me of talking about not just opposing military production, but offering concrete alternatives so that workers could have good jobs, producing something that's socially useful. I was involved in Latin American solidarity throughout the 80s, supporting refugees that were arriving, but also working with the different grassroots movements in Central America. 
When I came to London, it was natural to seek out people who were doing similar work. And I've been a labor activist all that time as well. I'm a former CUPE member, a member of a faculty union at Western, and I attend the London and District Labor Council and their political action committee quite regularly. People for Peace London has been around for maybe 20 years now, I think, began when people were opposing the U.S. invasion of Iraq. We did a lot of work around supporting Iraq war resistors, U.S. war resistors who came to Canada because they didn't want to fight in the Iraq war, and also around the Israeli occupation of Palestine, and particularly the blockade of Gaza. For the last few years, we've also been working around the General Dynamics Land Systems GDLS contract based in London, Ontario, though spread out in many other places, that supplies light armored vehicles or LAVs to the Saudi war on Yemen. Tell listeners more about the origins of People for Peace and about its work over its earlier years. At the time, as I said, I naturally moved towards the folks who were opposing the Iraq invasion in the early 2000s. There were all kinds of different people. There are faith-based groups, of course, but lots of people came together then. Lots of people came together at the time of the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 2006. And people in the community started looking to People for Peace as one of the groups who could help coordinate. You know, We've always been a small group of activists, but we help coordinate larger efforts with these community outpourings in London. There's always been a strong anti-war contingent that comes out at these crucial times. And of course, because of where we're situated, bringing together, for example, Latin American solidarity with, you know, solidarity with Palestinians and things like that, helping to bring labor on board wherever that's possible. For example, Iraq war resistors, when they came to Canada and they were terribly treated by the Harper government. I mean, such a contrast with the welcome that the earlier generation of war resistors got in Canada. The terrible treatment of war resistors in Canada in the early 2000s required a lot of support, but also a lot of public education explaining why this was the right and moral thing to do for people to leave the U.S. war, leave the U.S. invasion and take refuge where they could, including in Canada. The numbers were never huge because the Harper government was so very hostile towards them. The individuals that did come our way needed a lot of support in every possible way. And so we were part of the community effort in coordinating that support in London. And in that, you know, we weren't alone, but we were working with, for example, local Quakers and Mennonites who have a long history of helping people for peace. We were still engaged with the Iraq invasion and the Iraq war. I mean, it did last a while. Another action where, again, we responded to a community demand was at the time of the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 2006, and then the repeated Israeli aggressions against Gaza. I mean, starting with 2008-9, cast led, but then again in 2012 and again in 2014. There's this significant Muslim Arab population in London, and there's a significant outpouring, but the community turns to us as people who are crucial allies in building that support and in you know, helping to convey their message publicly when people come out for those causes. Around the flotilla work. Uh, here, David is referring to the Freedom Flotilla, which is a long standing international effort to break the tight siege by the Israeli state that has for many years kept essential goods out of the Gaza Strip. Around the flotilla work, there's a significant amount of public education because it's so consistently portrayed in the Canadian media as Israel's right to defend itself, right? And why one of the world's largest and most heavily armed military would need to defend itself against an unarmed occupied population when in fact they have obligations under the Geneva Conventions. All of that is public education work. So just explaining what we're doing to folks in the community is an important part of what we do in all those years. When I started getting involved, I probably would say it'd be around 2014 or so. And what I liked so much was the fact that we were like an ad hoc group of just individual activists in the community, just getting together whenever something was going on, whether it was Israel bombing Gaza or something pertaining with human rights, anti-war, anti-imperialism. 
it was just a few of us getting together, a few messages here and there, like, let's figure out something to do. It was like super grassroots. And I love that freedom of being able to really be radical in our thought and our actions. And I would say when Anna and I met in the teens of the last decade, a lot of it was about Palestine, the occupation of Palestine, supporting the work that she and other student activists did around PDS when she was on campus and making the links with as Anna mentioned, the Prisoner's Justice Movement and the Prisoner's Justice Film Festival in London was an eye-opener to me, understanding that the prison industrial complex is really at the center of so many struggles, whether it's Latin American solidarity, disabled issues, feminist issues, indigenous issues in Canada, issues of mental health and substance users. That was a great catalyst for just bringing together and saying, you know what? Prisons are at the center of a lot of this. So understanding that meant that People for Peace was just one element, and many of our other allies also were one element in that nexus of struggles that Anna described. When I joined, a lot of the work I was doing was around Palestine and things like that, but it was more that grassroots element of organizing, whether it was a book launch or it was like a film we were screening and incorporating, having a panel to discuss a lot of these topics. Like that's really where I was able to shine with People for Peace. They give me the freedom to organize these various events that allowed for the community to really unpack and learn in a space that was always, I would say, like open and intimate, which allowed for really great discussions to take place. I also want to mention we were doing as well the Justice for Sali campaign. Sali was in, I believe, the Lindsay prison, and he was murdered by the guards, and the family has been on a journey for accountability. Sali's brother reached out to me, I want to say probably 2016, maybe a little bit earlier than that, and we brought them to London. He was able to do a speech and really talk about his brother's story. And then now here we are a few years later, and it's huge now across Canada. There's so many other different organizations working with the family and really trying to help the family heal through getting justice. And so it was a lot of that intersectionality work about People for Peace that I really liked. There were so many different avenues we can go down, and there was really no limit to that. And I think that we see that even now with the current work that we're doing, with the coalition, with GDLS as well. So let's turn now to talking about GDLS, which stands for General Dynamics Land Systems, and about the production in London, Ontario, of light-armored vehicles used by Saudi Arabia in their war on Yemen. So the plant was converted. It used to be there were two General Motors plants, massive plants. I mean, the complex takes up the equivalent of several city blocks. And there used to be one that produced locomotives and one that produced auto, and then it became heavy machinery. It was taken over at one point by Caterpillar. Caterpillar went south, literally, to Chicago after a very bitter lockout of the auto workers. And the remaining plant was actually retooled circa 1980 by a former prime minister who has the same surname as the current prime minister. And Trudeau the Elder was the one under his government who got the Canadian Commercial Corporation to back this idea of retooling what had been a transport plant, you know, building locomotives to be an arms production plant, to build light armored vehicles. And Saudi was among the earliest customers. At the time, they also dealt to the infamous South African apartheid regime. You know, arms production is so very profitable. So bringing in General Dynamics, who have, of course, plants elsewhere in North America, right? But this is their flagship Canadian plant, meant that this incredibly profitable line of work for corporations had spinoffs in the community. And they've always sold it as something that, you know, there's many subcontractors and many benefits to the community. They're flagship donors of whatever causes in London's community. 
And they've sort of bought a lot of goodwill with politicians and civil society leaders in that way. And my place of work in the current generation of labs, they funded a bunch of research through engineering at the University of Western Ontario. This was material science. So in order to, quote unquote, improve the survivability of these assault vehicles, of course, this is survivability for the people inside. It doesn't improve the survivability for the victims of the violence on the outside. But again, this was sold as a win-win, you know, keep our boys safer. At that time, there were Canadian troops in Afghanistan, so everybody wanted to keep our boys safe and also provide benefits for researchers and students by siphoning some funding into UWO. And so this is a way that these mega profitable corporations can, as I say, try to buy civil society compliance, right? They get municipal politicians on side, provincial and federal politicians from different parties on side and sell it in that way as, you know, one of the last really high quality industrial jobs in the region as auto continues to shed jobs. And this, we can see it very clearly in the labor council. We used to have tons of auto workers and there's fewer and fewer involved in the labor movement now just because those plants have been closing. This one continues. It's the flagship for the Unifor Local 27 in London and area. It's very difficult to argue about these different rhetorical points, like when they say keeping our boys safer. Of course, the safest thing for Canadian forces overseas is to not send them overseas, right? So bring them home. That's been a slogan for half a century or more. The safest thing to do for Canadian soldiers is simply not send them to aggressive imperial actions in Afghanistan or Iraq or anywhere else. And in that sense, we're also opposed to the acquisition of F-35s or any new fighter jets. And we show up with the rest of the Canadian peace movement to oppose the purchase of F-35s. So that's the GDLS, General Dynamics Land Systems, position in London now. And it's very well embedded with, as I say, local civic leaders and others. I'm pretty sure it was our current mayor, Ed Holder, while he was an MP working with the Harper government to implement this contract with Saudi Arabia and the Canadian government. So, you know, there's that local connection there. And then also the fact that our Liberal MPs in London as well continue the talking points of the Trudeau government justifying this contract. We also have the president of the plant as well that lives here in London. So there's a lot of these local aspects that connect to this larger issue with the war in Yemen. There is tangible evidence that these labs are being used in grave human rights violation over in Yemen. As People for Peace, we're trying to have this conversation within the community and making it visible to show that there is this local connection here and that we are contributing to the deaths in Yemen and this ongoing war in the military industrial complex. What's unique about People for Peace is that we're not just asking for the end of the arms trade and the end of this contract, but we're also looking at and asking for a conversion of the plant and to stop producing these war machines for the war industry and convert and transition to peaceful production. I think the pandemic has shown that we can dramatically shift production if there is a political will there and we just need to continue to push civil society to push our leaders to create that political will to end the production of the labs. In the last few years, we've connected with a national coalition to oppose specifically this contract with Saudi. And Anna's absolutely right. That dates from the Harper government, who signed what's the largest export deal, 15 billion and counting, of LAVs to Saudi Arabia. And we know what the Saudis use them for. I mean, they use them for repression within their borders. They use them to repress an uprising in Bahrain a few years ago. And they're definitely using them in the war on Yemen, which the UN has said is the largest humanitarian crisis in the world for the last few years. And for the last two years, the UN has named Canada as part of the problem because Canada is arming the conflict in Yemen, the conflict, the war on Yemen. 
it's not the only party, but it's one of the parties. And European countries have begun to say, no, back away from it and say, no, we shouldn't be arming either side. Nobody in the West is arming the Yemenis, but we shouldn't be arming the United Arab Emirates and the Saudi-led war on Yemen. And the, the civilian casualties, particularly you know, children suffering from that war, are just horrific. So that's another case of a grave human rights injustice overseas, which, as Anna says, we try to bring home to the community and say, these local politicians are complicit with it. These liberal MPs are complicit with a war crime against Yemeni civilians. The local CEO is complicit with it. And absolutely, Mayor Holder, who was a conservative member of parliament, and minister under Harper. And in between that gig and being elected mayor, he was part of the Canadian Saudi Business Council, sort of as a reward for his services in facilitating this lethal trade in death material. So it's clear that local elites are very firmly established in their support for war industries. And we need to keep raising, as Anna says, the necessity of conversion to peaceful production. I mean, it's not as if Canada doesn't need heavy industries, right? We know the government has to invest in green infrastructure. It has to invest in mass transit in a big way. That plant could be producing, once again, locomotives and other green transport. People remember that. People in the community remember when it was a locomotive plant, remember when it was producing stuff that people actually need and want. And we could get back to that, but it takes leadership. It takes a change in direction from the governments to not facilitate and fund conversion to war industries, which is what they've done for the last number of decades, but redirect back towards a conversion towards peace industries. And right now, nothing is more necessary than green infrastructure and, and public transit. So it would be a perfect fit to keep those jobs in the community, keep all of the quality spinoffs that come from that plant, but just end not just the contract with Saudi, but phase out the war industry in general. I mean, some politicians will say they oppose the export to Saudi because of the war in Yemen. And that's the basis of this large coalition. I mean, it's great to have a coalition with Project Plowshares and Amnesty who can definitively prove with great credibility the human rights violations that Canada is arming in a very broad coalition, Oxfam, Peace Movement in Quebec, Peace Movement across Canada signing on to this. So when we're in front of the plant on Oxford West, we're connected with people all across the country who are opposing these exports. But we need to go farther and say, in fact, there are no acceptable clients. Even when they sell them to the you know, friendly Canadian and U.S. military, it turns out that LAVs from London were spotted in Portland putting down U.S. civilians. So you know, we shouldn't be selling them to the U.S. either. I don't think there are any acceptable export contracts or domestic contracts for LAVs. I mean, would we want to support the Canadian military? Not really, no. So all of that production should be converted. The current focus is on the contract to export to Saudi, but in general, that whole plant should be reconverted back to peaceful production, and we should get out of the business of publicly supporting the death industries, military production. In the context of this broad global issue and this national coalition against the deal, what has People for Peace been doing locally in London to educate the public and to oppose this military production in the community? Back in March of 2021, we walked the tracks out front of the plant. People for Peace was there, as well as World Beyond War, Labor Against the Arms Trade, Canadian Peacemakers. That's the nice thing about the coalition is that you get all of that support that they came to London and helped us. We basically just wanted to make it as visible as possible that the plant is complicit in these war crimes by producing these war machines. And then shortly before that, too, there was an action in Hamilton that blocked the trucks that were delivering these labs to the next point of destination, which would have been a port that would have been eventually been shipped overseas. 
And I think that's the direction that we're going in is more of these direct actions to be as visible as possible and to stop the transportation of these vehicles and really to get the word out there. We had the media picking up both these actions. And I think moving forward, we want to continue these actions. Yeah, Anna's absolutely right. It was March of 2021 when we were sitting on some CN tracks next to the GDLS plant in East London. Of course, the people that were there, we could raise the issue. We can't stop the railway for very long. And the plant has lots of ways of moving their product, as they'd say, their death machinery to market. So we definitely haven't done with that aspect of looking at sensitive points of where the arms industry ships their material by rail or by truck or you know everything down to the ports where they get on board to go to Saudi Arabia. So that's important, but it's also important because that gives us a platform to then talk to the community about why are we doing this? Why is London supporting these kind of jobs rather than other kind of jobs? Because each of these is a choice, right? It's a choice to support death industries or life industries, support the war industries instead of supporting peace industries and green infrastructure. So those start conversations with the community. This summer, World Beyond War and Labour Against the Art Trade were instrumental in getting out the word about some people in London who decorated some Liberal members of Parliament and the GDLS chief executive officers near his home with some red tire tracks just to bring it home that these bloody crimes are facilitated and supported by people in our community, by local politicians, particularly federal members of Parliament and business leaders. So those red tracks should be following these politicians and these business leaders all the way around the community. And getting that word out meant that it was known nationally and internationally, but also known locally. And it's always that piece of bringing the international to local and the local to international. So there's that combination of public direct actions that Anna's described and educational actions addressing the community, making the connections in the community with their people in the community from Yemen or who have family in Yemen, making the connection between, hey, there's folks here that have a job that depends on making machines that kill the family members of other people in the community and making that connection about, again, what choices do we want to make as a community? In addition, the lobbying efforts that we're also doing with our federal MPs in London as well, to push them to take a principal stand against the production of these labs, the plant. We see some hopeful signs with the NTP MP in one Fanshawe writing. And then we also continue to have conversations with our liberal MP from London North Centre, who continues to continue the talking points of the liberal government and kind of going in circles. But we are engaging in that lobbying effort to try to, you know, break down their understanding of human rights and the local connection here in London and wanting to be on the right side of history. Now there's a new Liberal MP in the West End as well in London, who we will also begin to engage in those lobbying efforts too. And I think that's equally important to be having these direct actions, the education as well. And then also at the political level, those lobbying efforts are really important to get that support. You know, I think it helps when the community sees their elected leader that's supporting an issue that they also have concerns about. And so it's definitely the work that we're going to be continuing on as well. You have been listening to my interview with Anna Badillo and David Heap of People for Peace. To learn more about the group, search for People for Peace London, Ontario on Facebook or Twitter. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. 
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.